All right, I'll go ahead and pray. Once I get to the passage. Perfect. All right, I'll pray. Lord, we just thank you that uh, you've given us a morning to gather together as uh, your people to bring you honor and glory for you are a great and awesome God. You live in heaven and uh, you decree what is to be beforehand and then we just walk in those things, Lord, and somehow we're given the opportunity to serve you and, and to follow you and to express faith and to grow and to be sanctified in this life, which is an amazing privilege that we are given, Lord. And even with all that, we look forward to uh, your kingdom being firmly established forever and taking part in that. We pray, Lord, that you would guide our hearts and our minds now as we turn to your word and we see these things unfold uh, from the future looking back as though uh, it happened just yesterday, Lord. I pray that you would affect our hearts and our minds this morning. In, our, in your son's name, amen. So we've uh, moved on to Genesis 22 now, the offering of Isaac. And just by way of review to get us back up to, to date here of where we're at, we have the uh, birth of Isaac took place in chapter 21. And the other important event that happened in chapter 21 was what happened to Ishmael. Does anyone remember what happened to Ishmael in 21? Does anyone want to take a peek and remind themselves what happened to Ishmael in 21? And what, what caused his sending away? Sarah. Yeah, Sarah and Hagar still didn't get along and, and understandably so. And Ishmael is sent away, and tough thing for, for Abraham um, to have his son, Ishmael, his firstborn son, Ishmael, sent away into the desert, uh, never to return to him. Uh, but God, God did tell him not to worry about it, that uh, do what it is that Sarah is requesting, and I'll take care of Ishmael, and God does, and turns Ishmael into a great nation himself that comes from Abraham. And uh, it does, as we noted, it does mention that, that uh, he ended up taking a wife for himself from the land of Egypt. And now we have another son. And that's where this, this story now centers on Abraham's second son, but yet the son that uh, the promised seed is coming from, and that's the point God was making in sending Ishmael away, is that don't worry, Abraham, that's not the one who the seed is promised through. It is through your son Isaac that uh, I'll fulfill all these promises I've made to you. We're going to see those promises repeated in this, pa this passage, but uh, it bears remembering that those are things that have already been promised, that all the uh, nations of the earth will be blessed in his seed and that uh, he will greatly multiply Abraham. If, if, you, if you scan down to 16 through 18, you see all these things that should be repetitive in your mind now about the descendants of Abraham. 
and the importance of this seed. Isaac. And the other thing with that is to understand that this whole time, the only true thing that Abraham has been granted by God that Abraham can feel and know is his, is his son Isaac. Abraham has promised that go to this land that I will give to your descendants forever and I'll make you a great nation. And Abraham knows, well, that's going to mean I need a son. And at one point he's like, well, is my is my chief servant that was born in my household going to be this heir? Because he's the only one I've got so far. And then it was, was at Ishmael. And finally Isaac comes along and God says, here he is. This is the one. This is the seed that everything will flow through. And Abraham now has, in reality, something he can feel in this temporal world that is the promise of God, and it is Isaac. Isaac is the one that all this will come through. And for that to happen, Isaac has to have kids, because Abraham's pretty much, if Isaac's the one, Abraham and Sarah are done having kids here. So Isaac needs to be the one. In fact, God says he's the one. This is the one that this is all going to happen through. And so Abraham knows now, he's, he's been very good when it comes to the, the promise of God and fo- doing exactly what God says. Abraham has actually been very good. He left the land of his fathers. He proceeded to the promised land. Yes, he has faults. We covered that back, I think, in chapter 20. Um, he uh, once again lies about who Sarah is. But when God says, Abraham, do this, Abraham in faith walks out and is obedient to God. And again, we see that Abraham truly believes that this is through Isaac that this is all going to take place. I say all that because of what's about to be requested by God of, of Abraham. So when we turn to verse one, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... And he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. So we'll stop there. It says here that God tested Abraham. It's important to note what this is, and probably one of the most important things about God to bear in mind is that God actually knows the outcome from the beginning, right? God understands how this story is going to end, and I'd imagine that all of you here, except for maybe some of the, well, even the young ones probably know this story and how it's going to end. God knows how this story is going to end. God is not tempting, but he's testing James 1, 13 through 15, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So when you're tempted, what is it that tempts you? What is it that causes your heart to desire to do wrong? Your own desire. It's your own heart. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. It goes on to say that all the good things that you have in life come from the Father. The the bad things that happen in your life are a result of you pursuing your own lust. Sin is is an inside job 
it's, it's, it's not like sin has to war against your own desires in order to get you to succumb. It's that you've got somebody on the inside who's willing to let sin in and do its, its destruction in your own life. So God here, when it says he tested Abraham, the picture here is it's like taking something that's metal and putting it into a very hot fire to burn away the impurity or to show the worth of the actual metal that's there. God knows what Abraham's made of. He knows what Abraham's going to do in response to this command that he's given. He understands what's going to take place. So if it's testing, in a sense, it's testing for God not to see what will happen, but instead testing on the part of God to show the worth of what is in Abraham, to show the, the extent of his faith, the weight of his faith, the value of his faith. And he says to Abraham, take your son to the land of the Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. And I find it's interesting living as close as we do to Colorado. We often think of going to the mountains for a mountaintop experience where you get closer to God up in the mountains and you go and enjoy God and nature and everything. At least that's how it was always presented to me. Heck, we used to, we took the boys several times to a, a ranch camp up there. And that's how that was presented as, see, you're so close to God and nature. Um, mountaintop, this is a mountaintop experience Abraham's going to go through. Um, and I would challenge you that most of the time, mountaintop experiences where the height of your faith is shown and your closeness to God is experienced is not in a time of great rest and relaxation and kumbaya and you sit around and sing songs. Very often, it's the experience that Abraham has here where God is requesting that he takes his son, his only son, and we're like, wait a second, there's Ishmael. No, 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 this is the only son. This is the one whom you love. This is the one who the promise is coming through. Ishmael may exist, but that's not your son. That's not the one. And I want you to go and offer him there as a burnt offering. I want you to go up there and sacrifice him. Now, the people of the land would have been people that uh, would have offered their children as a sacrifice. And to be honest, everything that Abraham has been given to this point, namely Isaac, is clearly a gift of God, is clearly in the hands of God. God put off his birth until he and Sarah could no longer have children as a way of showing in part that he is totally and completely a gift of God. God owns Isaac. He owns everything Abraham has. And for Abraham to give him back to God is okay. In that sense, in that God owns Isaac. He was given by God and, and should be given back to God if God requests it. But still a terrible thing for, for Abraham to be asked to do. So oftentimes the height of our testing and the closeness to our God fall hand in hand. And one of the things that should scare us most about that isn't necessarily the test, but it should be the being close to God. That's fairly terrifying. That's, that's an experience that when man gets closer and closer to God, it gets more and more terrifying. Certainly in Isaiah 6, when you have Isaiah getting to picture the throne room of God, you have this experience where Isaiah himself realizes that he's completely undone. 
So mountaintop experiences very are a height of testing. It's a closeness to God. It, it's a terrifying experience to be near to God. There's a, a, I think it's a more modern song, and I'm going to forget who wrote it, but a hymn that mentions kind of this idea. And it says, Thy glory or creation shines, but in thy sacred word I read in fair and brighter lines my bleeding, dying Lord. Yes, creation is an amazing thing, but being close to God and starting to see and understand the plan of God is an even more exhilarating experience. And that experience is exemplified here in the experience of Abraham as he goes up to the mountain to offer his son as a sacrifice to God. And we ourselves, the most amazing pictures that are in scripture are the pictures of our savior being given in sacrifice. The emotion that must have been present in Abraham and in Isaac when this request is given. Um, Isaac with some ignorance at the beginning here. Abraham with a full understanding of what's going on uh, is, is, I don't think any of us can truly even imagine what they were going through. There's still value. As I said, God knows and understands the outcome here, but there's still value in walking through trials because it demonstrates to us who we are, and it dis, it's a display by God where he has brought us in our walk with him. Again, Abraham is given a clear and concise instruction. He's called again, clear and concise construction, and he moves when God commands him to move. We see that at the beginning of verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. He splits the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. And just the picture here of the simplicity of the act of obedience is amazing. Even the splitting of the wood, I, Abraham is going through, Abraham has all of these servants and everything, and Abraham is going to do this exactly the way God said. It's all going to be done. He's the one who's going to split the wood. He's the one that's going to take his son. They're taking just enough people to do this. And the weight as he splits the wood must just be incredible. The heaviness on his heart of what is taking place. But at the same time, the hope that is in a living God, and we're going to cover that in a little bit, of who God is and, and the hope that Abraham has in him. So they go off on this journey, and, and they have enough time to really think about what's going on. And I can't imagine a whole lot of conversation was taking place. At least what conversation there was probably fairly forced. Let's see if I can get this to it. There we go. So they're traveling to the land of Moriah, and the land of Moriah, as best we can guess, is mentioned also in 2 Chronicles 3 as the threshing floor that David purchases to build the temple of God. So we're picturing this as being probably the temple mount. All indication would be that there's a little bit change in the language between here and 2 Chronicles 3, but it fits. It's at least in that area of Moriah. Now, whether or not it's the Temple Mount itself or a hill nearby, we aren't exactly sure what's going on. But it's in that area. 
Uh, it isn't Mount Gerizim. And Mount Gerizim is where the uh, Samaritans would say this took place, they, that he went in and uh, ended up on Mount Gerizim where they worshipped rather than in Jerusalem. And if that's an indi- any indication, then, then it's probably uh, confirmed through Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well that this is, in fact, uh, the more accurate location but I think that gets us away from the story a little bit. We may come back and touch on it some more. So verse 4, On the third day Abraham eyes and, or lifts, raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham says to the young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took his hand In his hand, the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. So the location is identified of where they're going, and they're headed out. Isaac is old enough here to carry the wood for the burnt offering that Abraham had split. He lays it on his son's back, and the two of them take off for this location. So Isaac here is old enough. He is probably, it's really difficult to know. He's anywhere from like 14 to 40, but probably closer to that 14, 16, 18 year age range. If you look at, if you start piecing things together as we led up to this passage. But he's, he's an old enough man that, uh, or old enough boy to man, young man, that uh, he does his part in carrying the wood and certainly could do his part in questioning his father to the point where he says, no, dad, we're not doing this. This makes no sense. God needs to be more clear. His instructions just aren't enough. Um, we don't know what we're doing. Let's stay here and pray about it some more so we're sure. There's a lot, of, a lot that Isaac could do here. But instead, he asked just the simple, straightforward question. And what we should also gather from that is this idea that there was sacrifice going on on a regular basis. Isaac understood through his upbringing the need for sacrifice to God and that it should be taking place on a regular basis. And, and so he knows kind of this whole picture of what's going on and he understands it. He's old enough to understand it, he's old enough to carry the wood, and he's old enough to have experienced the worship of God through the sacrifice of animals. We're not to the Levitical period where the whole sacrificial system is set up, but as you go back all the way to Genesis 3, when the seed is promised, there's also the skins that Adam and Eve had, and certainly animals had to die for those skins, and we see the sacrifice then of of Abel being better than Cain, and so we know that that's taking place as well, even back then, all the way up till now. Well, in fact, when Abraham comes into the land and whenever he settles in a spot, it appears that some sort of sacrificial worship system is being implemented. We don't have a whole lot more than that, but clearly this is something that Isaac has been raised in. In fact, Isaac has been raised in the faith of his father. He's been raised in the, the uh, faith being that collection or body of beliefs that, that produce in him the action that he has in worshiping God. And, and so Isaac has been experiencing that. And Isaac is not foreign to God. 
Abraham has explained all these things to Isaac. The assumption here is that, and I think it's very, very important as, as we see Isaac asking about a lamb, he knows and understands the worship of a holy God. I don't think that's a stretch at all. Isaac is carrying the implement of his own destruction even though at this point he doesn't fully understand it. And Abraham is carrying the tools that will be used to slay his own son, the fire and the knife. So it's important to note as I started this that Isaac has a full under, or Abraham has a full understanding of who Isaac is. That Isaac is whom the seed is going to come from, and that whole, all the nations of the world will be blessed for him. That the the only way that that can happen, of what we know here so far, of what's been shown to us in the first twenty one chapters of Genesis, is that Isaac somehow has to survive this, right? And Abraham gives an indication that the expectation is that Isaac will survive this. And what has he said to the men when he left? What's that? Yeah, we'll return to you. So in Moses' mind, this will work out. Now, imagine if you knew full well that if you take a knife and slay your son and burn him on the offering that he's going to come back, does that make it easy (laughs) to take a knife and plunge it into your son's chest? No, not at all. But there is an expression of a belief that this will work out. If we jump to Hebrews, the reason I bring that up is Hebrews goes on to, to even explain it further or in more clear detail draws out what we've just seen in Hebrews eleven seventeen. by faith Abraham when he was tested offered up Isaac and he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son well what was the pro- or the promises what was the promises the promises was you're going to have a lot of offspring you're going to have they're going to inhabit the land of Canaan and all the descendants of the world will be blessed through your son Isaac so Abraham knows and understands that and is told to offer up Isaac we've got all that verse 18 it was he to whom it was said in Isaac your descendants shall be called He, being Abraham, considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead from which he also received him back as a type. So Abraham has an understanding that God is able to, even if I carry through this, God has promised that Isaac is the one. He is the individual. He is the person. It is through Isaac that the promises will be fulfilled, even if it means he is brought back from the dead. I don't think Hebrews is taking and telling us what we didn't already know through, through reading Genesis, but I think it certainly gives it a lot more clarity, and it does so through a divine inspiration of God's word. But it takes the building blocks that are present here, leading up from chapter 20 through chapter 22, 
of this story. So we have here that Abraham knows that God is even able to raise his son from the dead if, it, if that's what it takes for his promises to be fulfilled. And it's, it's, it says a lot of things, and we can go down the rabbit hole, but it says a lot of things about the resurrection of the dead being taught in the Old Testament. In Exodus, we're going to have that the mention when Moses is in front of the burning bush, um, God tells Moses to tell the people, he says, yeah, I am sent you, but he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God of your fathers. Jesus goes on to take that statement and explain that God is the God of the living, not the dead. So we have this idea that God is the God of, of, or that, I'm sorry, that people are, in fact, continuing on after they are dead. Isaac, in Abraham's understanding of things, is there can be a resurrection of the dead, and those are the same individuals that left, that somehow there's a soul or, or something inside their spirit that can continue on even if their body is dead and can be brought back into their body. Something, something along those lines had to be in Abraham's mind. And, and just the idea of the resurrection of the dead is presented here in, in 22, 2021 20, and 22. Uh, we touched on it yesterday in our D group with uh, David's son, the first son of Bathsheba, who dies as well, and David talks about going to him, and does that mean David goes to the grave where his son is, or is that somehow he gets to see his son again um, in some form of afterlife? And uh, we, I would lean to the latter, uh, but more importantly here, this idea, this notion, if, as, as we're covering Genesis, we're also kind of covering some of these major uh, thoughts and ideas and doctrines of Scripture that are touched on, and that's one of them that's touched on here for sure. The the perseverance of a person past their physical body's death is believed by Abraham and is taught in this passage. I'm using an iPad instead of notes, and it's hard to find exactly where I was in the iPad. Uh, so you have to Excuse me. Um, verses 9 through 14 then, back in Genesis 22. And it, they came to a place which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Is there any way this takes place without Isaac's involvement? Somebody say no. No, thank you. Anybody can say no. You're okay. Okay, so there's, there's no way this takes place without Isaac's involvement. As we said, he's anywhere from like 14 to 40 years of age. Probably closer between 14 and 20 years of age. We have younger than that boys in here who probably be like, no way, you're tying me up. But you could tie him up. There is no way I could tie up Jack, those of you who know Jack. I couldn't tie up Ethan if Ethan didn't want to. Actually, Ethan's got a lot more strength in him than Jack does, which is kind of funny. Um, but there is no way, when you look at Jack, he's a big boy. Um, there is no way I could tie up Ethan, who's 24, 
if Ethan didn't want to be tied up. There is, it isn't going to happen. And that's what we see here is that Abraham ties up Isaac, binds up his son Isaac, lifts him up and puts him on the altar on top of the wood. So not only is he tying up Isaac, but the whole lead up here, Isaac has to know there's no lamb. Dad, remember you said there's gonna, that God was going to provide himself a lamb? Abraham here isn't, this isn't Abraham saying, hey, when we get there, everything's going to work out and there'll be a, a lamb in the thicket. This is Abraham going clear right ahead with it and Isaac submitting to it. Those of you who are parents, what, are the, what is the likelihood that you could tell your children in their teen years, this is what we're going to do because it's the right thing and God wants us to do it and it's going to cost you my teenage son or daughter, everything you hold dear, everything in this life that is valuable to you, and have them be raised in the faith that you have in such a way that they are like, got it, let's do this. But that's what we're seeing here. This is the relationship that Abraham and Isaac have and the relationship that not only Abraham has with his God, but Isaac himself has with God. So we see this take place. The altar is built. He's laid on it. And then in verse 10, Abraham stretches out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And it's not just that to slay his son isn't, isn't an indication that he has a knife that he's able to do it. He has a knife and the full intention in his heart is to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So the whole thing is stopped at the last second and Isaac is saved and even bigger than that, I think Abraham is saved from having to slay his only son. Those of you who are sons in the room may think that that's not exactly, you know, the punishment is harder on the father than the son. No, it's not. It hurts. Um, but I really, the, 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 what had to be going through Abraham was unbelievable. So it stopped and it says, for now I know that you fear God. And you shouldn't read that as, okay, I didn't know as the living God whether or not you feared me. It should be said that this is kind of as though it's saying, for now I see it demonstrated. Now it is clearly exemplified for all to see, including in front of me, that you fear God. It all came down to a basic, it isn't that uh, I, now I know you're faithful or now I know that uh, you follow instructions well or you're obedient. It all gets back to now I know you have the foundation of everything in your relationship to God. You have this reverence or this proper appreciation for your position in light of who God is. And that's truly what the fear of God is, is understanding who you are and who God is 
and your position and his supremacy. Now I know you fear God. So the test here this whole time was one of, is Abraham the type of person that fears God, truly fears God? And, and it, it is so. God understands the heart of Abraham. And, and certainly when we look at ourselves and our own abilities to, to do what we know is right, is it comes down to, do we fear God? Do we have that proper reverence or understanding of who God is? Not only, boy, I'm worried that God might punish me, but boy, if I do what's right, God blesses me. If I do what's well with him, I benefit from it as well. That's part of the fear and understanding of who God is. As it's demonstrated here where Abraham does not withhold his only son from from God. Certainly the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Here's the fear of the Lord being worked out, being demonstrated for all to see, even to this day. So then verse 13, then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And what a sweet aroma that had to be. You talk about the, the sweet aroma that's offered to God through sacrifices. Well, here we have Abraham being allowed to give this ram that God provided. God provided a lamb. God provided the ram for the burnt offering. And the fellowship that went on between God and Abraham and Isaac as they sat there and sacrificed and allowed another one to go in his place must have been absolutely unbelievable. You know, you picture this story being told by Isaac to Jacob and Esau and even their children, the children of of, uh, Jacob anyway. But what a time, what a special time between father and son as they commune with a holy God around this sweet sacrifice. And what a great picture of to the people of Israel as they're being brought out of Egypt and they've been given this whole Levitical system of sacrifice for them to kind of start to get even a more clear picture. Why is it we do this? What is this sacrifice for? And remembering back, well, remember Abraham and Isaac. We don't offer up our children in the fire. God does not call us to do that anymore. And even in the case of Abraham, he stopped it from happening and provided a a lamb. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is to this day in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And it is interesting, again, we don't know, we know where the area of Moriah is. And a question in my mind is always going to be, is this the Temple Mount? Or is this Golgotha? Certainly in the same area. Certainly both we see the provision of the Lord given through the sacrificial system of the lambs that would have been still taking place in Israel in the time of Christ. Verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, And have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, 
I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand in which sand which is on the seashore and you shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. So we see that God repeats the promises that were already in place and says, this is because you have obeyed. Because you have done this thing in not withholding your son and and fearing me and being willing to offer, all of these things that I promised are going to take place. And I think we covered that, right, in Matthew. Matthew 7. Maybe. So Matthew 7, 24 and 25. Therefore, everyone who hears the words of mine, these words of mine, and acts on them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Well, what's the rock that it speaks of there? What's the rock in verse 24? Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Who is it that builds his house on a rock? The wise man. What makes him the wise man? Okay, he built his house on the rock. He who hears these words of mine and does them and acts on them. So often, certainly when I was growing up, that meant, okay, I want to be wise and have knowledge and understanding. So that when the rains fall and the floods came, the house is going to stand and it'll be a great house and it'll be awesome. Okay, I got it. It's not what it's saying. It says it's the one who hears these words of mine and acts on them. That's just what we saw in the life of Abraham. In this episode, God says, this is what I want you to do. Go offer up your son, your only son. He hears his words and he obeys. The result is that his house is a great house and it's standing on the rock. And that's what God tells him in verses 15 through 19. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven. This house that is the descendants of Abraham, the blessing that flows to to all the nations through his seed is given because of his obedience. It's tied directly to obedience. The blessing that comes from God does not tie to the fact that you know a lot of scripture or you memorize it or that you can give good advice and are are wise in the estimation of other believers even. It comes from your obedience to God. Obey God and he blesses you and your foundation will be strong. It will be secure. Your foundation is not a theoretical thing. The foundation on which your faith is built is not something that's spent building up your mind. It's spent building up the muscles of action of obedience. And that's what we're seeing. The promises of Abraham here are directly tied to Abraham's obedience. It's because of that that God says, I will bless you. Again, not a new promise, but the promise is affirmed. 
The promise wasn't in jeopardy until Abraham did this. God knew what Abraham would do even when he first initially made the promises. That's what's to take away from this is that God knew and understand everything that's happened from the time he took Abraham from Ur and brought him out to now God knew that those promises would be connected to the obedience of Abraham. He picked Abraham and he worked through Abraham to the point where Abraham, because of obedience, has these promises given, but the, the obedience through which these promises come are also within the hand of the, and control of God. The sovereignty of God is, is something that from here on out, as we deal with individual lives, will become very profound in the book of Genesis. You'll learn more about the sovereignty of God in Genesis than any other book of the Bible when it deals with individual lives. And as we, as we kind of narrow down more and more to now we're dealing with the line where the seed comes from, it's even more so. Because you have to remember back in, in the beginning of Genesis with the first children, the expectation was maybe this is the one. Maybe it wasn't Cain and it couldn't be Abel. Abel's been killed and now... Um, it's got to come through their brother and then, well, maybe it's Noah. Maybe Noah's the one that's going to reverse the curse and it's not. And we're watching for the seed and here the seed is promised to come through this individual, Abraham, and now through Isaac. And it's moving forward. All of it's within the hands of God, not only as a general universe moving forward as it does, but now we're starting to see it in specific lives of individuals down to their obedience is part of the plan and workings out of God not of those individuals. Abraham is walking in the good things that God has given him to do. And again, we see this promise of Abraham to return to you. They're going to go worship and return to you. And that's exactly what happens. They worship God. They offer up the ram that God has provided. And then he returns to the young men in verse 19. And they rose and went together to Beersheba. And that's where Abraham continues to live. Life goes back to exactly to how it was before. It's an amazing short story. It has an actual conclusion. There's other short stories in the Bible that don't, and I think of the prodigal son, and there's no conclusion at the end of that. And If you ever want to read a good book, read MacArthur's book on the prodigal son or listen to the sermons. And It's, it's profound the way that literature is written, but this is, this is one of the top short stories in the Bible, and here everything returns back to its state of of, of continuation, kind of like where it started, except they've gone through this experience now. They've returned to Beersheba, and Abraham continues to live in Beersheba. And next week, we'll walk through the death of Sarah and, and the end of the story of Abraham. But for now, this last great act of obedience is shown as Isaac will carry on the seed. So God does provide a lamb, and there's a lot in this story that points to or has connections with the rest of Scripture. Um, some of these are more clear than others. Certainly the, the continued uh, reference to Abraham's son is picked up in John, Let's see if I get there. Elise said, "You should make sure all your cross references are right." Last night, as I was conferencing this, and I said, "I'm pretty sure they are." 
And then I checked them, and they were. Yay. Uh, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but eternal life. As Jesus is talking to, to Nicodemus, Right? Nicodemus, who's the teacher of Israel, he knows all. He would have been very familiar when, when Jesus says, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, his only son. Number one, Nicodemus probably was thinking, well, we're all children of God. But he should have, his mind would have gone back immediately to Abraham and Isaac, knowing full well that, well, Abraham has another son, but he would have known what it meant, only begotten son. Well, of course, the only son of God, there's one. Just like Abraham really only had one true son. So Jesus is using the same language to describe himself. And is pointing Nicodemus in a direction of his sacrifice. Because the verses leading up to that, as Moses lifted up in the, servant, the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This picture that Jesus is starting to give Nicodemus, give Nicodemus some credit. His understanding was probably deeper than yours or I, ours when we read this, because he spent his whole life knowing and understanding things like Genesis 22. not saying they had chapters then, but just that passage. In fact, if you, if you turn back, the reference that, that, that my mind keeps going to every time I read this story in Genesis is in John 1, we have John the Baptist in verse 26, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong on whose sandal I'm, un, I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God will provide a lamb in Genesis John the Baptist, and I hear, I really truly believe that he is speaking outside of his understanding of who Jesus really is because he questions whether Jesus is the Messiah later in his ministry, the ministry of both of them. But he calls Jesus the Lamb of God, the Lamb who God has provided. And there's this, because John, you have to remember, understood the Messiah as being one who was going to, at this point, come and, and set up his kingdom. And here, he's being called the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So we're seeing an understanding of Jesus being this lamb that is provided Then we have, uh, jumping on, then we have the idea that uh, Isaac, well, let's jump over to Matthew 3, I'm sorry. So Matthew 3, verse 17 
We have this same this episode where Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist. In verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Again, that picture of the relationship between God and Jesus, Father and Son, that we saw exemplified in Abraham and Isaac. And then it is interesting that Jesus is then sent into the wilderness in that situation. And we, if we have time, we can touch on that. Although I might not. Yeah, we probably aren't going to have time. If anyone wants to ask me about Jesus being sent into the wilderness and also sacrificed and have discussion about goats and Esau, or I'm sorry, not Esau, Ishmael and Isaac, sent out into the wilderness versus sacrificed. We can have that discussion afterwards, but it is an interesting discussion. And then we have this idea. So, so this idea of father offering son, God providing a lamb, a ram, a sacrifice, and the pictures that are given here carried and touched upon. The New Testament draws upon this story those of you who teach the word, know your Old Testament because you're, you're going to not need a whole lot of personal examples to grab in day-to-day life because until you exhaust the Old Testament, you may not need a whole lot from your own life. There's plenty here. Um, but we see here this example that, that the New Testament goes back and touches on these things and brings these ideas forward. God's given us this story for that. We see the salvation of Isaac by the hand of God from his father. Isaiah 53. Well, before we do that, John, I keep doing that, John 19. We saw the picture of of Isaac. And as Isaac was going to be sacrificed, what's placed on him? Wood. Wood. He carries the wood for his own sacrifice, doesn't he? John 19, 16 and 17. So he handed him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him. So we see again, the touchstone of Genesis 22 in the sacrifice of Christ. As Christ is is called to carry his own cross, he ended up having help because of the beating that he took was so severe it couldn't be done, but certainly voluntarily he picked up his cross and carried it. And then, why did all this happen? And here I think is where we'll end, is Isaiah 53. So who was it that was to sacrifice Isaac? His own father, right? His own father was to do it. So Isaiah 53, verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. 
If he who renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So the good that comes out of it. But all of Isaiah 53 to this point is all about the beating and the killing of the son. If you go back to verse eight, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, they killed him for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there found any deceit in his mouth. So it's referring to how Jesus was buried, even though he was killed as a criminal by the people. But how did it all come about? It was because the Lord was pleased or it fell within the plan of God. It, It was God who put him to grief. It was God who put him in that position. It was God who carried him to the crucifixion from that, the beatings he took, the public humiliation that he underwent, the sheer exhaustion and pain, and that crucifixion, that act of his death on the cross. It was the father who brought the son to that point. Key difference here. Someone stopped Abraham from killing his own son. God went through with it because he had to, to save his people for him. He went through with it and just as Isaac climbed up there, tied up on the altar and allowed his hundred some year old father to slay him, our savior does the exact same thing generations later. It's an amazing picture that God gives us. But don't for one second think that it is a small thing for the father to turn his back on his son, his only begotten son in whom he is well pleased, who has done nothing wrong to save sinners. God crushed him. Not something God called on Abraham to do. Abraham didn't have to go through with it. God certainly did. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for the unbelievable love that you have shown a people who have stiff necks, who fail on a fairly regular basis and do not fully understand the graciousness and goodness of who you are, Lord. Lord, we have the opportunity today to take communion, and I just pray that we would have a better understanding now of why it is we get to remember what happened to your son, how you offered him up, Lord, and you did not withhold your hand. Instead, Lord, uh, Christ went through all of that pain willingly, He did all of it in submission to you and you did all of it to redeem a people to yourself, Lord. We cannot fathom how it is that such a thing brings you glory, Lord, but we know that we should rejoice in the fact that you have chosen to do so. And Lord, we should acknowledge that uh, it makes you a bigger and more amazing God than we can ever wrap our minds around. 
And for that, Lord, we are greatly appreciative. Pray that you'd cause us to uh, enjoy this next hour with uh, the singing and the reading and, and preaching of your word, and that those who do not know you will see your son for who he is and what he has done and would be numbered among your people. It's in his name, his glorious name, that we pray. Amen.